Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Have you tried finding tickets for any live event lately? It's impossible to keep up and prices are crazy. That's why you have to check out Gold Star. Gold Star makes it easy to discover the best in live entertainment in your city with instant access to awesome events and special ticket deals. Concerts, live theater, comedy, dance, food fests, immersive experiences. You name it, Gold Star has access to special deals you won't find anywhere else with savings of 50% or more. Go to goldstar.com and use code DCPOD to save $10 on your first purchase. That's goldstar.com, code DCPOD to save $10. The following podcast is an exclusive presentation of Project Entertainment Network. The Prolific Writer Podcast, episode number 50. Lindsay Baroker stops by the show. Are you ready to learn from a veteran indie author? Yeah, you are. Let's go. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well. So you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Well, hello, hello, hello. This is your prolific writer podcast host, Ryan J. Pelton. I am so glad that you are here. I am pumped today. Today's November 30. And that may mean nothing to you, but November 30 is the last day of NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. So those of you who have participated in the craziness that is writing 50,000 words of a rough draft of a novel in a month, today's the day. If you're hearing these words, you are already done. It's over. It's probably December 1. I can't believe it's even December. That's amazing. But Okay, hey, congrats to everyone that finished NaNoWriMo. Excuse me, I can't even say it straight. It is a great accomplishment. Now go and edit the crud out of that novel and get that thing out into the world. Go, do it now. Ready? Go, go, go. I'll wait. Did you go? I'm waiting. Go.
go edit that thing, go polish that thing, go rewrite that thing, whatever you need to do, get that work out into the world. Now, if you are not done, you are not finished, you didn't complete, you didn't win, that's okay. At least you tried, got some words on the page, go write some more words, get some more words on the page. I uh, finished my NaNoWriMo novels. I actually did two children's books with my son, Noah, and that was a great joy to have him kind of give me the ideas, and I kind of wrote it. And so I wrote two short children's books that were over 50,000 words. I'm still working on those, so those will be out in the world at some point. But I've been having a blast sharing that with my son. He's kind of looking them over, giving me feedback, fixing some stuff. And so it's been a, been a great, 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 great fun. So... Well, hey, I want to say hello. It's episode number 50, which is amazing. We're almost a year into the Prolific Writer podcast, and it is the podcast dedicated to helping you write fast, often, and well. And so however you found us, welcome. I'm Ryan J. Pelton, your host. And we had a exciting thing happen to the show as last week was our first inaugural show on the Project Entertainment Network, projectentertainmentnetwork.com. Go check it out. There is a stable of artists uh, on the Project Entertainment Network, and we are proud to be part of that now and excited to be part of the family and all the different shows, writing shows, cooking shows, pop culture shows, all kinds of stuff. They were kind enough to ask us to be part of that. And we said yes, and it's been uh, been great. So I'm excited to be part of that family. Get get rolling there. So if you haven't had a chance, go check out projectentertainmentnetwork.com. Check out the shows. And as always, the primary sponsor of Project Entertainment Network and their stable of artists is Subculture Corsets and Clothing. And so what I know and what happens every year around December is Christmas. Uh, you know about that. We celebrate that. We get gifts for our loved ones maybe males, maybe females, maybe children and subculture corsets and clothing is a great place to go get men's clothes, women's clothing, all kinds of stuff, apparel, retro corsets, Gothic steampunk, you name it. They got all kinds of cool stuff. Go check out subculturecorsets.com, subculturecorsets.com. And I will put that in the show notes. And if you put in the prolific writer, you will get a 10% discount if you order online. And if you happen to be in the area, happen to be in the Jacksonville, Florida area, you can actually visit the store, which is just off I-95. So if you're in the Jacksonville area, go check them out. If not, and you have the internet, go check out subculturecourses.com. Check out all their cool stuff. And we are so thankful for them to support all these shows on Project Entertainment Network. So Today, I have Lindsay Baroker on the show, and I have been chasing down Lindsay, trying to get her on the show. Our schedules have not worked out for quite a few months, and finally, we got her on the show, and I'm so excited to share this interview with her. She is kind of a veteran indie writer, which is funny to say. She's been writing books full-time since like 2012 and even before that and has had great success writing fantasy and sci-fi and some other things. And and you're just going to love this show. She just shares a wealth of knowledge on the writing and publishing industry, especially in the indie space, things she's learned, things that have changed. And you're just going to love her. She's just a sweet person and is going to offer a lot of wise writerly sage advice and uh, I'll put all her information in the show notes, lindsaybroker.com. You can go check out all her books. She has a million of them. Uh, and so without further ado, here is Lindsay Broker. 
Welcome everyone to the Prolific Writer Podcast. I am so privileged today to have Lindsay Baroker on the show. Lindsay's a, a full-time, best-selling, independent author of fantasy and I think some sci-fi. Loves to travel, hike, uh, play tennis. She grew up in Seattle, but now lives in Arizona, apparently because she's solar-powered. So so tell us a little about that. How did you discover that you're solar-powered? <laughs> well, growing up in Seattle, I was always like borderline depressed in the winter and uh you know, I find it really hard to get up in the mornings. Uh, I'd been down here in Arizona. I was in the Army for four years and stationed at Fort Huachuca. And I remembered just really liking the the dry climate and the sun. And uh, I'm at about 5,000 feet right now. So we actually get all the seasons, including nice. snow, probably coming next month. So it's it's a pretty cool place to live. And I, I definitely find it easier to be perky here and right, <laughs> wake up in right. the mornings. Oh man, I, I went to grad school in Michigan in Grand Rapids and I thought I was going to die. I'm from California originally and so we moved out there and the sun like didn't come out for like three weeks straight and uh, I was like, I think we have to leave now. <laughs> so I understand the, the, the weather is a big thing. Actually, cool thing, you're in the in the armed forces, but my grandfather's a World War II test pilot and actually um, did some training in Arizona and he tells some great stories about the cockpit being about 150 degrees. Um, and so, yeah, not, not the greatest when it's the middle of summer, but, uh, but Lindsay, thank you so much for, uh, coming on the show. And, and I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but you're kind of a veteran when it comes to indie publishing, like you go way back to like 2011 to like the golden ages, you know, and free was like a thing and people, you know, download a lot of books. And and so you've seen a a big evolution in kind of the indie publishing world. And and you've actually been a great voice for indie writers and publishers and and been a big help. So we'll get into some of that, that too. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit just about you and kind of your, how you got into um, writing and uh, you have a very interesting story and just kind of your influences and why do you write fiction now? You kind of a, kind of a cool story, um, how that all came about. So tell us a little about that. All right. Wow. I have a cool story. I had no idea. <laughs> um, I always liked storytelling. Like as a kid, I, you know, my mom taught me to read really young. I was reading like Little House on the Prairie when I was three or four. And I was writing, making up stories almost that young. And I had teachers that encouraged me. But also by the time I got to like middle school, high school, people were like, yeah, this is nice, but you can't make a living doing this. So you should start thinking it like business or computer science or something like that. And I ended up going into the army after high school kind of to pay for college, kind of because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I did end up working on a computer science degree, but I shifted over to like culture, literature and arts because that was just more fun. And uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but at the time I'd figured out how to make a living. I was actually uh, online since like 2001. I think I made my first money online selling beef jerky on eBay, (laughs) (laughs) the good old days. And uh, eventually Google AdSense came along and I was in a position to be able to exploit it I already had some websites up with some content, and I've been in. I think the Amazon affiliate program has been around at least since 1999 or so, and I've been there almost since the beginning. And so, for a long time, I did nonfiction because that was what you could actually make money from the affiliate stuff and the clicks on AdSense. But I always loved fiction, and sort of in the background, off and on, I'd be working on stuff. A couple times, I joined the sci-fi and fantasy online working workshop, which is still around, I believe, and uh, probably a good place if you're getting started. And uh, one of the good things about there is like you put up a chapter and then you critique somebody's chapter and they critique your stuff. And it was really inspiring and motivating to see other people 
finishing novels and like selling them to publishers. You know, this was like early 2000, so no indie stuff really going on yet, unless you wanted to print 5,000 copies or something. <laughs> but you know, you'd see people selling stories and succeeding, and that helped me actually finish my first novel. I have just such, I was such a start and write like 30,000 words and get tired of it, or my characters were stuck in a dungeon and I didn't know how to get them out or something, so I'd move on to the next project. Or, so it was motivating, and eventually, it was around 2009, I finished my first novel, uh, and it kind of looked, that, that was the Emperor's Edge fantasy, sort of not really steampunk, high fantasy stuff, and I was looking on agent sites, because at that time, I'm like, well, you're just going to have to, you know, find an agent and a publisher, that's the only option. And uh, I still had this idea because this culture I was steeped in was very snobbish towards self-publishing, so I didn't even think of that. But I, I put that novel aside because it didn't sound like, you know, all the agents were like, we don't want this, you know, no high fantasy, definitely nothing with, like, monsters and swords and magic. And I didn't have dragons in that series, but I do love dragons. <laughs> uh, so I wrote another novel, which was almost the same. I don't know how I thought that was going to sell either. But I decided, okay, I'm just going to have to start querying and... and I was reading, looking online, researching how to pitch agents, and uh, somewhere in all that, I came across J.A. Conrath's blog, and at the time, he, you know, this was like late fall 2010, and he was posting his numbers like, oh, you know, I made like 100000 this month, here's all my <laughs> titles mm -hmm. that I self-published. Like, wait a minute here, <laughs> there seems to be money now in, uh, in self-publishing, and I also just got in a Kindle, so... Sorry, I got dogs barking in the background there. <laughs> the life of an at-home writer. But I got into Kindle at that time, too, so I was finally aware of eBooks and the Amazon store. And I went almost immediately from, like, I'm going to have to get traditionally published to, oh, I'm totally self-publishing. This sounds like my thing. Mm -hmm. So first novel went up about Christmas, just before Christmas 2010. And at the same day I was formatting it for Smashwords, I got an email back from an agent I'd been in touch with like back in May. And she was like, oh, I liked your novel. I'd like to represent it. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I'd paid for editing and everything at this time. And I said, no, I'm just going to go ahead and mm. do the self-publishing thing. So I have not regretted that. Not mm. at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Yeah, you have a great, great story. I mean, I've, I've followed you for many years and read a couple of your books and and it, it's been been fun to see someone who's kind of, you know, it's weird to say like on the ground floor, you know, 2011. Um, but, you know, around J.A. Conrath and, you know, his kind of taking all his books out of traditional and putting them in self-publishing and actually making a living and um, and just the ups and downs of that. But you've kind of tried to keep a pulse on kind of the indie space and writing space and, you know, what's working, what's not working. We'll get again, we'll get into that in just, just a moment. But um, what was kind of the moment where you... Um, thought, you know, I think I can do this. I want to do this. Um, not, not back when you're, you know, Hey, I want to write or I want to be creative, but, but when it was kind of, was there a moment when you maybe got a comment from someone or you finished the book? Like, was there, was there a point where you just said like, this is it, this is what I really want to do? Um, pretty much by the time I put those first couple of novels out there, self-published, and they were not sequels. I remember at the time I was so jealous that people had all these trunk novels that they could put out there right away. And I couldn't believe that, like, I actually thought I was coming in late because, you know, mm -hmm. we'd already had Amanda Hawking and, you know, <laughs> a bunch of the people really killing it at 99 cents. So I always tell that to people starting now. I'm like, I, I thought I was too late when I got mm -hmm. started. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just there's every year, you know, I have a marketing podcast and we interview people and there's every year somebody that comes out of nowhere and hits six figures. And it wasn't that fast for me. <laughs> it was very much a learning curve. 
and there were a lot there were no podcasts back then advising you on how to do this stuff and there was no you kind of had to find your own cover artist by hunting around on deviant art mm-hmm. and it it's funny to me that i'm like an old hand now when <laughs> you know traditionally published authors there's many that got their start in like the 80s and they're like oh these indie people they don't know anything <laughs> yet they're so new right and uh, so it is funny to me yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It's you, you joked about you know five thousand copies of books in your garage, you know, or whatever, and you know that was really the only option. And I think you know there was a there was a kind of a stigma attached to you know indie publishing, self publishing, because it's basically well, you just can't be a real writer, and so you have to do it yourself. But you know, some of that was vanity. It was just well, I just want to get my book out there. I don't really care. Um, but but a lot, I think that narrative's changing. I think there's authors like yourself and others that are just doing you know really good work, writing great books, and and actually are choosing the the kind of indie route um, over maybe traditional because it just makes more sense for them. Um, so I, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit because this is a, a I've had some of your friends on the show, um, Jay Thorne, Joanna Penn, Zach Mohannon, and you guys did something really cool. Uh, some people know this, some people don't, but you guys wrote a book on a train in New Orleans. And I thought that was really cool. And I wanted to hear more about that kind of your perspective. Um, and, and I, I want to, you could tell us a little bit about kind of the, the genesis of that. Um, but then talk a little bit, talk a little about the process of how you guys actually like put the book together and kind of, you know, passed it back and forth and got the story out there into the world. Cause it is available, I believe. Yes. And if I was good, I'd actually remember the name of it. <laughs> it's in Jay Thorne's American Demon Hunters series. Yeah. It's, let's uh, say it's Sacrifice or something okay, like yeah, that. I'll, I'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes. I, I have it All somewhere. Right, but yeah. Cool. It's not my usual genre. So it's kind of weird that the guys asked me, but mm-hmm. I, I think it was sort of like they had gotten Joanna to agree and they were like, okay, we need another girl to balance <laughs> things out. And yeah, we uh, started in Chicago and took an overnight train to New Orleans, which was this is kind of what sold me on it because I actually don't like collaboration and I was really mm-hmm. wary going into this mm-hmm. uh, that what we were doing but it sounded like such a fun adventure and once we got there we spent five or six days in New Orleans kind of writing in the mornings and then going around and seeing the sights and uh, as far as how we did it it was actually kind of a cluster mess at first <laughs> like the first day because uh, I think we had a kind of a mix of pantsers and outliners and mm-hmm. it was really like uh, Joanna wanted to just figure it out along the way and I was like, this is killing me. I need an outline so I know what happens on it in my scenes. And uh, so I think Tuesday night it was uh, Jay and Zach and I. Joanna was uh, she was like really sleep uh, jet lagged. So she'd go to bed earlier and she'd be up writing at like 3 a.m. or something. But we just hammered out an outline. And from that point on, I was much more relaxed and comfortable with it. And our, our way to do the cl- handle the collaboration was we had four point of view characters. So we each wrote our own character mm-hmm. and the scenes from the, that character's eyes. And that made it easier, I think, than trying to really have one cohesive style that mm-hmm. went throughout the whole book because it was it was okay if the styles were a little different because it was a different person's point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the challenges, of course, came when the characters were together in, <laughs> in scenes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we definitely – it took more editing passes – And uh, kudos to Joanna because she really did a lot of work at the end to to bring it together. Mm -hmm. And uh, but, you know, much more editing than definitely I would do on my own. I tend to write pretty clean first drafts and I just Mm kind of go over and check for tightening sentences and that kind of thing. We had a lot of scenes that like we hadn't been reading each other's quite enough as we were going. It might have been easier if we had actually been in different time zones. So like, oh, this person posted in you know, the UK, and then I'm getting up in the US and it's already done so I can read their stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a challenge with all being in the time, same time zone and and trying to work concurrently on scenes that were happening at the same time. (laughs) 
So did you, so when you guys were done with the trip, like how, how done was the book? Oh, we, that was kind of our thing. We were going to have a, at least the first draft done and that's pretty much how it was. We, we've, the trip was over. We'd finished. It had gone down in word count. Originally, we were mm-hmm. like, we're going to do a big novel. It's going to be at least 80,000 mm-hmm. words. And I think in the end, it was about 43,000 words. We're like, oh, okay, okay a novella is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, New Orleans was such a neat city, too. And like Joanna and I had never been. So we wanted to enjoy it and do a lot of sure. the touristy stuff. So uh, I think if you were trying to do this with a group and just have put out a massive word count, mm-hmm. <laughs> like finish a novel in a few days, maybe locking yourselves in a cabin in the woods might be a, a better mm-hmm. idea. But we got inspiration from the train ride and, and from the city. So mm-hmm. it was fun. That's great. So I, I listened to a uh, interview recently, with Joe R. Lansdale, and he was talking about collaboration. And he actually said, I really hate collaborating. He's done some collaborative stuff. Um, you just mentioned that talk, talk, I mean, maybe hates a strong word, but, um, you know, talk, what, what is what makes it difficult? I, I mean, I've had collaborators on here, you know, Sean Platt, some others that they, they kind of build their, their whole empire on the collaboration, but what makes it challenging just as, you know, as a solo author, um, versus working with someone else? You know, I think some people just naturally are, are drawn to it and really excited mm-hmm. by the idea and they're not super like precious about their how they put the sentence together or if mm-hmm. somebody else might edit it i i'm a little more on that uh side where i feel my readers especially i've got a, a pretty distinctive style a lot of humor in my stories and i actually had people when i had an anonymous pen name and hadn't announced it yet mm-hmm. a few of my readers figured out it was me or they thought they said this person writes a lot like you mm. so i guess with collaboration i'm I'm concerned that my voice might be lost or my readers wouldn't enjoy it as much because they can get the same, you know, what they expect from a book with my name on it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I feel other people are just really not, I don't like to think of myself as a control freak, but <laughs> are just really farther on the opposite end of the scale where they're mm-hmm. just, they want to see a cool story come together and there's not any of their ego in it. Mm-hmm. So, and that's probably really important for co- the collaboration. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a little more, <laughs> my ego is a little more in mm-hmm. it. So it, it's really hard for me, even with my editor that I work with, she's great. But a lot of times I push back on things. I'm like, no, 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 this is not how my character would say it. Or, you right, know, right. it's okay if it's not grammatically correct in the dialogue. So mm-hmm. it's just the personality type, yeah. I think, as to whether you'll be good at it or not. And I'm sure some of it can be learned too. Mm-hmm. Well, Lindsay, this is actually a, a counseling session. We're going to get after your control freakness. Uh, I didn't, I didn't mean to break this to you, but this is, you know, you've been, no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I, I am special, Ryan. Yeah, right. You must admit it. Yeah, I am special. Right. No, I, and I agree. I mean, I, I'm hearing a lot of voices saying, you know, like collaboration is like the way of the future or it's like something you, you know, have to do or should consider. Um, but I, I think sometimes it even, you know, some say it, it, you can be more productive, but I think sometimes it actually makes you less productive because, you know, you, like, it sounds like you write pretty clean first drafts and things like that. Like I, I do too, actually. And, and I think sometimes when you're waiting for someone to give it back to you and you're worrying about voice and you're doing all that, like it can be a lot more work on the back end. Um, but you know, there's obviously a time and a place for it. And, um, yeah. So thanks for, thanks for sharing that, that story. I think that's a great, I mean, I, I love the adventure part of it. Um, you know, probably <laughs> less than the right, you know, less, more than the writing part. Um, but, uh, no, that sounds like a, like a cool, cool project. Definitely. We'll put that in the show notes, of the book that people can check it out. Um, so I want to, uh, transition kind of back to a little bit of just what you've seen in kind of the indie space. And, you know, you obviously have a, a marketing podcast and you've been writing, you know, I think you're over 30 books now and, 
um, a lot of experience and, and doing really well. And um, so from 2011 to today, let's talk a little about that. Kind of what, what have you seen kind of as you, when you were jumping in and, you know, what was kind of working versus maybe what has changed? What's, what are the challenges? What are the good things, the bad things? Cause I, I think on some level, I mean, even like the internet, I mean, I think we're still very much in the beginning. Everyone wants to say, Oh, you know, we're, we're already beyond this or that, but you know, Facebook is still relatively new. The internet's fairly new, you know, um, Social media is fairly new. Indie publishing is fairly new. But but what are some some kind of big uh, maybe plot points that you would say have changed since 2011? Sure. And uh, I will say, because I have a pen name too, I'm actually, I counted recently up to 50 novels. So. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and, and I, yeah, I started the pen name from scratch in 2014 actually because uh, people were kind of saying, oh, it's too late to get started. You know, if mm-hmm. you're starting now, you can't do it. And I, you know, I kind of took that as a challenge, and I'd been thinking of trying something else anyway. The pen name does sci-fi romance, so it's not actually hugely out of my wheelhouse, mm-hmm. just more adult stuff than in my typical things. But I started that from scratch and, be, you know, started a new series and became successful at it before I outed it. And now I have, you know, some of my re- readers read both of them. Mm-hmm. But you are right, and it's sort of like every year there's some new thing that can be exploited if you're paying attention uh, when I started, KDP Select wasn't even a thing. Uh, most, you know, I had readers on, and I still am mostly wide with my stuff under my name. Uh, the pen name is in KDP Select because right now it's really an advantage to be in Kindle Unlimited mm-hmm. as we talk in fall of 2017. You know, who knows what it'll be next year. Mm-hmm. I've seen Permafree was really kind of a big thing and one of the things that helped me a lot when I got started. I, it took me a while to figure out how to make a book free on Amazon because mm-hmm. you had to do the price matching thing back then. Mm-hmm. Technically, you still do. And I, it was, I was probably the, writing for about eight, nine months before I found out about that. So that was a thing that really helped out. Um, but I was able to sell books before that. I, I didn't have huge expectations going into it. I was, you know, I, the first month I sold pretty much nothing, <laughs> like mm-hmm. maybe three books that weren't to people I knew. But it gradually went up. I, you know, at the time, the only advertising opportunities were Goodreads. You could do the pay-per-click ads, which you can still do. They didn't. You didn't get enough clicks a day, basically, to to move the needle too much. I did sell a few books that way early on, and I remember Kindle Nation Daily was kind of the first sponsorship site, and the only option. And I didn't. I tried it a couple times with my fantasy. I didn't have a whole lot of luck earning back my investment there. Uh, gradually more things came along, uh, KDP Select came along, and at first it wasn't really big, a big incentive to go into it. It really wasn't until, you know, they had, I think, the Kindle countdown deal and a, a few promotional things early on. Mm-hmm. But when Kindle Unlimited came along, I guess that was 2014, 15? 14 it must have been. Suddenly things changed with all the borrows being counted as sales. So if you weren't in Kindle Unlimited, it was really a huge disadvantage because it was a lot harder to try to stay in like the top 100 for your categories. Mm-hmm. And I, for a long time, I just kind of fought against it. I'm like, no, no, I'm not putting anything in Kindle Unlimited. Uh, when I had the pen name, that was a chance to play around with it. And I thought, yeah, it really is a big advantage to be in it. Mm-hmm. And there are some people that have started in the last couple years and you're just like, wow. I wonder if it would have happened this well for them if not for Kindle Unlimited, mm-hmm. Unlimited, because it is all. I think people discount or don't count, put enough credit into how much easier it is to get a borrow than it is to get a sale of a four or five dollar ebook or even a ninety nine cent ebook. People stop to say, "Okay, I'm going to pay money for this," 
Whereas once they subscribe to Kindle Unlimited for their $10 a month, everything is essentially free to them. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm bitter, but not bitter because I've made a lot of money with the pen name. And I've also put one of my own series in there when I tried sci-fi last year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I saw that, <laughs> hey, it's working right now, working really well. Mm-hmm. I, I think what I've seen over the years, though, is just the real basic stuff, like, there's nothing wrong with trying the thing of the month, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's let's do Insta Freebie right now, or, or let's okay, we're using BookFunnel to help uh, do arcs and download free books, and uh, let's try Facebook ads and Amazon ads. And I try a lot of that stuff. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. But for me, at the core of it is just trying to gradually get more readers in, you know, on my mailing list, more fans. I love giving away a free book one in a series. Mm-hmm. And because uh, most of my series are like seven, eight books, so there's that many more books for them to go on and buy, mm-hmm. and it it still works. Like you may these days, if you make something perma free or temporary for, temporarily free, you're probably gonna have to advertise it. Kind of in the old days, you, people would just find it. It used to be more visible, like the top 100 free tab on mm-hmm. Amazon and all the categories. Mm-hmm. But uh, I love that because it's it's kind of like it's hard for us to be in the library. I have all the boxes checked on Overdrive, so mm-hmm. I can get my books in the library. But we're just not like traditional, pub- traditionally published books right now, and that they're just automatically going to be in all the libraries in the country mm-hmm. and around the world. So for me to have something free, I'm happy to have that out there as a, a gateway. And if people read my books through other means <laughs> besides paying me, I'm, I'm, you know, of course I want to be paid. But if they're fans, hey, they're fans. Even if they didn't pay, maybe they'll tell somebody else who will pay. Mm-hmm. But uh, the basics are really there, just maintaining a mailing list that's worked from the beginning, regularly emailing people, trying to just gradually, you know, each month, even if all you're doing is paying for like a $10 ad on a site to get a few more downloads of a free book one, the more people you can gradually get that are really psyched about your worlds and your, you know, books, just the more steady your income becomes. Like I actually haven't published anything under my name in over six months, which is forever mm-hmm. now in the indie world. Mm-hmm. And you see things drop off, but I still my backlist stuff still sells. I every now and then, if I can get an ad that helps something, I have a new series I'm gonna have coming out soon, so I'm excited to have some new stuff. But in the meantime, the pen name had six books come out, and, and those sold well, so she paid mm-hmm. the bills this summer. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, the basics really do work. Just I, I am totally someone who just kind of writing and publishing the next book is my biggest form of marketing. Mm-hmm. I will, like I said, I'll certainly try the new things and, and sometimes they're useful. Sometimes I just decide it's not for me or it's, it's mm-hmm. too much work to track everything. Mm-hmm. But I'm super excited now that there are so many different ways that people can go from nothing to making a living or more than a living just from their books by having found Facebook ads or by finding Amazon ads or by doing joint group box sets. Mm-hmm. And it, it can really be the thing that starts your career and then, of course, get the people on your list so that you're not wholly relying on that thing because mm-hmm. Facebook changes every year, you know, <laughs> all these things. Sure. It, it does seem like every year it's kind of a, the new thing, whatever the new thing is. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're saying a lot of really important things is that everyone thinks there's like a magic pill or magic bullet. Um, I have an author friend who, who's written like 150 books and he's, he's tried Facebook. He just keeps saying, you know, I just doesn't work for me. Um, and he's, he's found success other ways and he's a full-time author. And, um, but you know, there, there are people out there that are selling courses, selling ideas that it's like, you have to do it this way. You have to do it this way. But I think that, like you said, an email list is really the, the key relational connection, um, where, you know, I watch you interact with your fans and, you know, they're, 
you have these re- genuine relationships that people are looking for the next book and they're going to buy everything you have. It's kind of that thousand true fans principle. You know, if you find your thousand true fans, you can make a living as a creative, as an artist. And, um, you know, you don't need a million. And, and I think that's important because things change so fast. And I think people wait around for a long time before they write that next book and they're just marketing, marketing, marketing. But you're like, you know, the, again, the best seller often is the next one, next thing. Um, now, um, how have you found, I know you, now I, I could be wrong because you have so many books, but are most of your books like in a series? Like, do you recommend writing? Like if someone's starting out and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm a no name, I'm just trying to get my name out there, trying to get a few readers. Um, you know, would you recommend writing in the series or does it not matter? Would you recommend being wide or staying, you know, KDB or staying in, you know, KDP select or uh, Kindle limited or whatever? Yeah, I don't always give – I give it advice that I don't necessarily follow because <laughs> I, I, I love series. Once I come up with characters, I want to keep spending a lot of time with them. So right. it's very common for me just to say, oh, I'm going to do an eight-book series. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually kind of like – I think it's Michael Anderley and some of his 20 books uh, to 50K people kind of suggest designing a series where you can do, give it like four books to see if it takes off and mm-hmm. it kind of hits the – you know, does well enough for you to think you're getting, you know, a good return out of it. And if it's doing well, you know, you kind of design it so oh, it could be expanded to eight books or 12 books. I tend to just have one story arc and commit to it. And I've kind of got it in trouble in a couple series where they didn't sell to my expectations. And I, it kind of made me, or the reviews weren't that great with the feedback from my fans and I would get disappointed with it. And I have a couple still hanging out there that I need to go back and finish. And it's, I will, but it's really hard to motivate yourself to go back and finish the series if it's not doing well. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the idea definitely of series, especially, you know, I'm sci-fi fantasy that's very expected in that genre. But even in thrillers and mysteries and some other genres, you'll find there's like a series where it's a complete story in each book, mm-hmm. but it's the same protagonists mm-hmm. and that the characters are what people fall in love with. And it's just like if you don't have a series like that, you almost have to you have to sell the book every single time you publish it. Mm-hmm. But once people fall in love with the characters, you know, you, you know authors out there that have done 20 or more books with the same characters and mm-hmm. people just keep buying them because they love the character. Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing to get to a place like that as an author because you actually kind of know ahead of time, well, this is how much I how many copies I'm probably going to sell of this one and how much I'm going to make from the launch of this book next month. And it, once you decide to do this full time, it's nice to kind of have a feel for the potential. You know, you're not just guessing and hoping. You actually know, okay, well, th- these books are, mm-hmm. this is what I make on them, so I can kind of count on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as going wide or Kindle Unlimited, KDP Select right now, I, you know, it's up to the author. I think it's more advantageous right now to try to launch a series into Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, mm-hmm. if, especially if you're kind of a, you don't have a fan base yet and you're starting from scratch, it seems to be quite hard to gain that early traction on the other sites. And, you know, and it depends on how well you're doing. If you're not selling much on Amazon and you're not getting many page reads, then there's no point of you being there. It's kind of like if you can leverage it, though, if you're selling enough to get in those top 100s and to start appearing in the also bots of some other books in your genre that sell well, then things get rolling and Amazon's kind of selling your books for you. Mm-hmm. But um, it's whether or not you'll be able to do that is who knows. It's, you know, the best cover you can do, see what's kind of selling in your genre, see if your story sounds similar to the stuff that's selling. 
if you're kind of cross genre and out there and not sure how to market it, I'm not sure KU is really going to help you that much unless mm-hmm. you're just a real marketing genius. Mm-hmm. But it, I, you know, I feel like a betrayer to, <laughs> to Kobo mm-hmm. and Barnes and Nobles in saying that, but. I would usually tell people if they're just starting to give it a try for the first quarter mm-hmm. and see how it does. And then right now people are having a lot of luck with kind of holding back and doing the rapid release of just like three, the first three books in a series back to back to back. Mm-hmm. It, it's tough now. It's funny that, like I said, it's been six months since I published my last book. It's like, that's forever ago. All your stuff falls off all the cliffs and mm-hmm. you just, whatever sales you're getting from your backlist kind of trickling in over time. But it's really easy to, and, you know, I meant you mentioned that I've been doing this now for almost seven years, and I've seen a lot of authors that were selling like killing it when I first started. I, you know, I went to Kboards and saw all the people posting, and you look at the books in the signature, and now you're like, I have no idea where that author went, and mm-hmm. <laughs> you might think to look them up, and they haven't published anything in three years, and mm-hmm. you know, now that book that was selling 10,000 copies a month or more is 500,000 in the Amazon store. Mm-hmm. So I just. I love the rapid release thing if you can do it, but don't do something that's going to burn you out really quickly either. I I love to write fast, and I feel lazy if I'm not working on a project. That's just Mm -hmm. me, and uh, it helps being full-time too, for sure. Sure. When I first started, I was just shooting for a 1,000 words a month, or not a month, a day, Mm -hmm. when I was still working full-time. That was a pretty good goal, I thought, and you could get a novel together in like three months that way. Mm Mm-hmm. No, that's good. I think you're saying a lot of important things like, you know, you have to do what works for you. Um, I I think, you know, Kindle Unlimited is an interesting animal. Um, It does lend towards kind of those, Mike Anderley calls, you know, whale readers, um, you know, like yourself that um, have big series, you know, they're going to read those nine books like, you know, in a month and just go crazy. And that helps a lot. You know, if if you know, that's the kind of series, you know, I've had a lot of, um, uh, horror authors and they all say writing a series in a, in a horror genre is really difficult um, unless you're writing kind of a dystopian kind of big world kind of thing because they they just they don't lend themselves to the same characters doing you know going to the next thing usually it's kind of a clean break but I think most genres they do you know you can write in most genres in series you know romance thriller you know I, I remember Lee Child I heard him in an interview and he you know does Jack Reacher stuff and he's like, why would I stop writing Jack Reacher? I mean, it pays the bills and he's like 25 books in, you know, and people like the character. So he just keeps writing it, you know. Um, and of course, if you get bored with it or you want to try something else like you have, um, sometimes you just have to do that for your own sanity or your own creativity or just experimentation or whatever. Um, so thank you for that. That's really helpful. So I want to get into um, just because you have been around and uh, you've written a lot of stuff is a little bit of your process, kind of how how that's evolved over the years. So you said, uh, I, I caught you saying, you know, you did about a thousand words a day with the full-time job. Um, how, how has that kind of shifted, evolved over the years? What have you kind of learned about yourself as far as your own process goes? I have learned, I didn't start out as an outliner. I was a pantser mm-hmm. and I have learned that the pantsing is where I would often get into trouble where I kind of got the character someplace and I wasn't sure how to get to the next place. I'm, I've gotten better just with experience. I can now pants my way through a novel and have it work out. I, I've learned that as long as I know how things end, I can find a route to get there. Mm-hmm. But what you know, I would hear it was actually the SPP guys uh, doing their collaboration, and, and Johnny's like, "Yeah, I wrote my 
6,500 words today, and now I'm going to do this and this. I'm like, you wrote 6,500 words? You know, <laughs> I think I got up to like 3,000 by then. I just gradually increased it. And, uh, you know, it's like just knowing that other people are doing much more is very motivating, at least to me. And, uh, you know, I'd hear about people doing 10,000 words, mm-hmm. and I'm like, could I get up to that one day? Mm-hmm. And I, I found that, you know, uh, I think you had Rachel Aaron on as a guest. Yep. Uh, she's got that 2K to 10K book. Mm-hmm. And it, I found I kind of knew a lot of the stuff that was in it, but it was really good to read it and go, yeah, yeah, that's that's why it works. You know, and she says you got to be really excited about the next scene. And if you're not, figure out a way mm-hmm. to make it exciting so you want to write it. And that and just really knowing what's going to happen in the next scene or the next couple chapters before you sit down to write it. That made me a lot faster and more efficient and less likely to have to go rewrite a lot of stuff by the time I got to the end. So, I, you know, now I kind of I do an outline for the whole novel at the beginning. And if it's going to be a series, I'll scribble a few notes to you for like the next couple of books. I don't try to outline too far ahead because mm-hmm. I've, things really change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even in one book, I usually get to like chapter three and then like, I look back at my outline later. And I'm like, well, that was not quite what happened. <laughs> but <laughs> I find that like the night before, though, if I just kind of think this, this, and this happens tomorrow, then I'm ready to sit down and write right away. And now I'll do kind of depending on my deadlines with my editor and, and what I'm trying to accomplish, five or even 10,000 words a day. Like I've just got off a streak of like five days of 10,000 words a day because I'm trying to get a trilogy together to have out by Christmas. Mm-hmm. And it's because I know what I'm going to write before I sit down and do it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's hugely important, I think. Even if you're a pantser, there's no reason why you can't the night before go, okay, I think yep. in this scene tomorrow, it's gonna it's got to start like this, and then this thing has to happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's all you need to, for the words to really flow. Sure. So that's, that's yeah. me. I'm not quite to a novel a week yet. I know there are people <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had uh, Amanda Leon. She writes like two a month, so it's a little crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's really not a, I always say this, there's, there's not a pure, I don't think there's a pure pantser, I think, you know, or discovery writer, whatever language you want to use. Um, because you're always having to think, you know, okay, what's the next scene? What's the next, even if it's just a seed of an idea, even if you don't write it down, you still, like you were saying, you're kind of just thinking about subconsciously what, you know, or consciously, what, what is that? You know, what, where do they need to go? What do they need to do? And then the fun of it is obviously you discover it as you're writing it. I mean, I I imagine your outline isn't, Hey, it's going to do this and this and this, and you never stray from that. I mean, that's the fun of writing. I mean, if we didn't have any creativity or, Oh wow, the character ended up over here. That's fun. You know, or or they said something there and made me laugh, you know, (laughs) um, that, that's always the, I think the joy of writing and why we do it. Um, it's not to just have this, you know, outline that you just, plug and play, but, but also to kind of discover who the characters are and the story and the worlds and all that. Um, so let's, let's dig a little further in that. So, um, you're up to five to 10,000 words a day. Obviously you've, you've, you've grown there. And then what does kind of your editing process look like? You, you say you, you know, do pretty clean first drafts. Um, you know, do you, uh, what does it look like once you're kind of done with a, a rough draft? I will go over it one time and that's where like I said it's usually mostly just kind of tightening up sentences or if if as I was writing because when I do my first draft I don't go back and fix things Mm -hmm. if I make a note if I'm like okay I gotta I changed this character's background or something or Mm -hmm. I gotta put a seed for something in that happened later on so if I need to do that I'll add that as I'm editing and then I, I just do one pass like that and send it off I do have beta readers that I they're really great. They came out of my fandom, fan base, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and uh, they're very smart. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have like beta readers with expertises in different areas. I have one girl that's just like a medical 
she's got a, knows everything medical related and that's, that's what her job is and so i've actually kind of relied upon that especially in my sci-fi i often have these medical kind of threads and i'm more likely to be science fictiony in that than a like in how warp drives work or whatever. I just, I'm like, ah, I don't know anything about theorizing <laughs> on that. But, uh, but so that's, uh, beta readers get it. And sometimes, usually while they have it, I'm already starting on the next book. I'm kind of a little factory going right mm-hmm. now. I don't like a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. I will, you know, after I finish a, a rough draft, especially if I wrote it quickly, I may c- take a couple of days just to catch up on like admin stuff. I, if I have to publish something or my editor sends something back, that's when I do that. But uh, so then they have it, they read it, you know, within a week or so. Then I go over, I don't usually go over the whole thing again. At that point, I just kind of address whatever they commented on. And mm-hmm. if they found typos and stuff, I'll do that. If it, somebody's motivation needed to be beefed up or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with them, I don't, it's if I agree with them. Uh, I'll get a list back sometimes. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, I don't agree there. But no. uh, if something makes sense, I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. I forgot to do that. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing I, I will change. And then it's off to my regular editor, who is basically a copy editor. She uh, half proofread, half copy editing. She doesn't usually tinker too much with my sentences unless I, I have a tendency to do long sentences and they can get a mm-hmm. little unwieldy. So she might mm-hmm. try to clarify things a little bit. And then... Um, that's about it. We, I put together a f- final formatted ebook, and I do these days, and I didn't do this in the beginning. I've got a few fans that like to read everything I write, bless them, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll send them kind of typo hunter copies, is what I call them. Mm-hmm. And so, and they'll send, because it's amazing how many typos will be oh, in yeah, things yeah. even after you've gone over it and your editor has gone over it. It's actually one of the weird things of the universe. It's like if you play guitar, your picks, like you lose picks and they show up you know, in some other alternate universe. It's like typos. Like you can read the same sentence 28 times and still miss it. Uh, Yeah. Every now and then it's like a complete word that's wrong or something. And you're like, I don't even know what word that was supposed to be. (laughs) Right. I know. It's amazing. Um, So, so you have these beta readers, you have a couple editors looking at your work. Um, As far as like design and formatting and things like that. um, Well, let me, let me back up. One other question I was curious about your editors. So do you have like a, like a, particular editor that you use most of the time that's kind of familiar with your work um or do you change up editors or does does it not really matter yeah the lady i use now is great i've had her since almost the beginning it took me a couple other people before i found her and i had a horrible experience with the first editor he was awful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i wanted somebody i only paid him two hundred dollars and it was off of keyboards or something and then Mm -hmm. He put semicolons in every dialogue tag. That's all oh. I remember. It was I couldn't even use it. Like there was no way I was going to go through and accept, reject everything. Yeah. So this lady came out of technical editing. That mm-hmm. was her background, rather than fiction. Although now she's been doing my stuff for six years, and she's got, she's become really booked. So I'm mm-hmm. fortunate she always leaves me a slot every month. Mm-hmm. But she does a lot of fiction now, and uh, she doesn't have a sci-fi background or any of that. So sometimes she'll. She's like, is this what you meant to say? And I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> sci-fi people will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> She's like, okay. But uh, I don't think it's super important to have a, an editor that's like really well-versed in your genre because mm-hmm. I'll see that people are like, I need to find an editor for my sci-fi romance that knows science fiction and knows romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, But if all you want is the copy editing, that's not really necessary. Right. Now, if you're kind of newer and you haven't done the workshops and critique 
with with other people, then it may be worth paying for a developmental editor. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you do want somebody that's really familiar with the genre that you write in and can tell you, like, romance is one where, like, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of this percent in the novel, they should have had a kiss, and Mm -hmm. by this, they need to have sex here. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's such a formulaic genre that readers Mm -hmm. will might not be that pleased if the right. novel's weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> original. Mm-hmm. It always has to have a happy ending. I know that. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, the, that's interesting because uh, I, I just wrote a thing about questions you can send your beta readers, like just so you don't, people don't just go, oh, I liked it. You know, the, it, you actually give them very specific kind of coaching on the, here, here's what you're looking for. The characters work with they, you know, is there funky dialogue? Is it, is it, where's their boring parts? You know, does the story work? All that kind of stuff. But one of the things I said was be careful when you pick writers to be beta readers only because they think like writers. And so they kind of go, well, if I was writing it, here's what I would do. Um, rather than more pure readers, you know, and sometimes editors can be that way too. Sometimes the best editors aren't writers because they, they kind of go with a different look. You know, they're, they're not going, Oh, I'm going to change Lindsay's voice here. And you know, this is how I would say it. It's like, we don't want that. We want actual, you know, is the sentence clunky? Is there grammar problems? Is there whatever spelling? Um, so it is, it's a hard thing. It, it is, it's, it's hard to find kind of that, that sweet spot where, you know, the, the editor kind of understands you, but also isn't overly like, you don't want editors to change out your voice. That's the worst thing they can do is, you know, all of a sudden it sounds totally different. (laughs) That's not their, their, their role at least. And uh, I hear you saying that. Um, so following up with that, uh, we were talking about a little bit about design. Um, do you have like a go-to cover artist? Do you have a go-to like formatter or how does that, what's your process after you kind of get your, your, uh, manuscript cleaned up and pretty? Sure. And that's changed over the years because early on there were not all these people hanging their shingles out. You know, it's hard. I used to, I found one guy that did ebook formatting and uh, I had paid him to do it separately. And then eventually my editor added it onto her services. She learned how to, I think she uses Juto and just kind of drops the Word document in there after she formats it. Mm-hmm. But since Vellum became a thing, mm-hmm. I've, I have a Mac. I just, I try to like, wow, this is really easy. I'm just going to mm-hmm. format my own stuff now. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, I like that. That's something I'd wanted to do because when you have a lot of books out, sometimes you want to change the back matter or somebody yeah. reported a couple typos or something. And it's really a pain to have to email somebody else. You know, my editor was always cool about it, but I know some people would, their formatter would charge them if they wanted to make mm-hmm. some updates. And so you'd kind of put it off and not do it. And and so I'm using Vellum now. I really like it. Haven't tried it for paperbacks yet, though I plan to. Mm-hmm. Uh, my I have used many different uh, cover designers. Uh, kind of depends on the genre I'm in, because I do sort of epic, swords and sorcery, steampunky, mm-hmm. blendy, <laughs> mishmash mm-hmm. fantasy, uh, and I also do space opera, and I do this sci-fi romance with the pen name. Mm-hmm. So in that genre, Photoshop stuff is completely normal, and illustrated things going to look weird and probably not sell. But in over here in epic fantasy. You know, sometimes people with Photoshop and use symbols and swords and things, but you see a lot of still the illustrated covers, and it's something I enjoy. So even though I didn't couldn't afford it early on to do, because custom illustrations can be like a thousand dollars, I've kind of gone back to my backlist and redone some of the older covers with illustrations. And um, I'm act, but see, it takes time. Illustrators, you know, they want to know like six months out that right. uh, what you want. So it's tough for somebody like me that writes pretty quickly and I don't always know six months. I never know six months ahead of time what I'm going to be working on or what the title is or what the story is about. 
So I'm kind of a pantser when it comes to planning. Like I kind of know the next couple of novels maybe, but sometimes I'll get really excited by an idea. I'm like, oh, let me just stick this in here and publish that. So I've got a, a group that does the Photoshop manipulation stuff. They're really good and quick, so I appreciate that. So that I end up going that way quite often, and it can work fine. Those covers are usually only a couple hundred dollars for the whole shebang. And um, I did that with my Dragon Blood series. They're all just Photoshop ones, and that's uh, kind of a steampunk fantasy series. And they sell fine. That's probably my biggest selling series, uh, historically speaking. <laughs> and they had some of the most inexpensive covers. So the custom illustrations are nice, but probably not necessary unless you have the time and that's just something that really excites you and, and you just love you want to see that and it can really help too i've seen some people with uh we had elise kova on a couple of years ago and she came out of nowhere she but she had this gorgeous cover of her hero illustrated i think it was ya fantasy and i'm like i know why that book is selling right now <laughs> right <laughs> so I, I, I bought it too i was like that's beautiful i have to buy that book <laughs> so right. uh, and it, it can sell books for sure right. uh do not under, underestimate the power of an awesome cover if you can get one. Right. Yeah, I think, it, you know, someone once said, you know, the cover doesn't necessarily, um, you know, sell the book. Um, but it if you don't have a good cover, like the chances of selling are, you know, not very good. I mean, if it's just, you know, um, Microsoft Paint, you know, rest in peace, Microsoft Paint. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if, it, if it looks very silly or childish or, I mean, there's some hor- horrific... Yeah, you know, I'm on these these newsletters for different sponsored sites, and it's amazing how many bad covers there are still out there. And, and um, I, you know, I always tell people too, like I've used some pre-made covers. Um, if they're not, uh, you know, maybe you don't need it for a series. There's some great um, go on and write.com is a great website. He does great covers, and they're like forty bucks, fifty bucks, and they look as good as anything out there. Um, so it just all depends, kind of your needs and where you're at and where you're starting. And um, yeah, no, I think that's really really helpful. Um, so when you're ready to publish. Um, do you have any decisions as far as like, do you know if you're going to go wide or go just Kindle only or, um, and then kind of how do you get it out into the world? Do you use like draft digital or something or what do you do to kind of get to all the different sites? I started out with Smashwords and I'm still there even though oh, man, I'm that's, up. You are brave. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually have readers that buy from Smashwords, so I still okay. put the stuff up there, but almost everything I do is direct. I Apple was the last one, and a couple years ago, I finally downloaded iTunes Producer and started uploading direct to them. And, you know, I know Dan Wood at Drafted Digital. He's totally great. And someday I'm going to stick all my books up there. Just I think they're the only ones going to Tolino right now. Mm-hmm. Especially, I think Pronoun is, is down now about a week ago as right. we're recording this. Right. And so it's it's kind of back to Drafted Digital being probably the main option. But mm-hmm. um. I, I've just gone direct since Kobo Writing Life became a thing. Apple, you can do. Mm-hmm. I'm in the U.S., so I was always able to do Barnes and Noble direct, Amazon direct, and um, Smashwords. I still get some. Old, I still get money from them because I have books up there that I never took down. Uh, because I, you know, I asked. I remember I asked at Kobo, like, well, will I lose all my reviews and everything if I take them down from Smashwords and then lo- upload them directly? And at the time, the answer was yes. So I just said, well, I'll leave it there and. Uh, like I said, uh, some of the international people like Smashwords because I think they can just use PayPal. They don't have to have a credit card or anything. Oh, okay. So because I still have readers there, I still use it. Mm-hmm. And um, almost all of my stuff is still wide. Even the series I put wide under my name last year, my Fallen Empire sci-fi series, I left it in for about a year. And once things kind of fell off of the rankings, I figured, you know, I'll just put it wide because I had had 
a lot of people emailing asking when it would be on Kobo or Barnes and Noble. And that's sort of the problem. If you're going to split the fence like that and be half in and half out is you're not really going to please a a lot of people. (laughs) You're actually, my pen name is all in with KU and that's easy because that's all she's, that's all people have known her as is an Amazon author. And there's nobody on Kobo saying, Oh, where's your books? Cause she was never there. (laughs) But when you start doing the thing and, I understand why people are doing it because they, they love Amazon KU for new releases. It, it can really help, but then they don't want to be totally exclusive with Amazon mm-hmm. and Reliant, so they, they put stuff wide. Just just be ready. You're going mm-hmm. to get email yeah. from people who aren't yeah. that happy. So with all my existing series that I'm adding to, they go wide. Uh, you know, I did kind of wrestle with this new trilogy I'm doing because it's in the same world as a series that's wide, but that and I've been going back and forth, and am I going to put this in KU? And I think the answer is yes, at least for a quarter, to see how it does. I am. I haven't done it yet, but I, you know, I talked about this on our podcast. I'm planning to do probably something like Patreon, in, as a way to let people buy the books, like advanced e-reader copies of the books before I put it on Amazon, mm-hmm. and click the button that it has to be exclusive there. You know, and I've looked at just selling them on my own site too, but then you get the sales tax thing you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm trying to figure that out because I do want my Cobra readers and my Barnes and Noble readers to be able to pick them up if they want to. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they won't because it's more of a hassle, but at least they had the option. And with BookFunnel, I would I would use them to deliver the eBooks. It's pretty easy now for people to get them on their various devices. So that's kind of what I'm looking at now. Is uh, if it makes sense, if it's a new series or something, and I can launch into KU. Uh, I am for now. I'm, I less care less about the page read money as I do about the visibility. It, you know, it's really tough being wide. And uh, I actually just briefly looked down the top 100 in Epic Fantasy last week because I'm seeing, well, is there any anybody doing well that's wide? And basically, the answer was every single book except for one was either in KU or it was traditionally published by a pretty big name author, mm-hmm. or it was traditionally published by a less big name author but on sale for 199. Mm-hmm. I one at one out of a hundred was wide and actually made the top 100 for epic fantasy and like these are not good odds mm, mm. <laughs> so i'm using it for now as yep. as i can yeah well and i think you know those listening like you only have to be you know exclusive for 90 days you know if, if it's kind of experimenting for a quarter and just kind of seeing how it does and maybe you know putting your toes in the water it's not for life you know you can always get out they amazon won't you know, show up and take your firstborn or anything, they'll, they'll let you get out. Um, yeah, no, I think it is an interesting time. Now tell us a little bit. Are you, um, as far as your print sales, audio say, do you have audio too? Um, how are those, how have you kind of seen those? Like, are you seeing any, any shifts in your own sales and your own? Um, I know for me, audio has been huge, so I don't, I know I, I just feel like a lot of people are doing a lot more audio, but tell me about that as far as your books. Sure. Print sales have never been anything spectacular. Mm-hmm. I do do print copies of pretty much everything because there's always like one or two people that, mm-hmm. <laughs> when's the print version going to be out? Right. Uh, and, you know, I find this time of year, it's we're coming up on Christmas. They often, that's usually my best month, like on Create Space, is uh, November because people are buying copies for Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. And, and so I do those. I am not yet in Ingram Spark. Someday I'm just going to call them up and see if I can get my books transferred in because it it sounds like that's the way to go if you want to get – if bookstores actually – you know, you want to be able to give them the discounts so that Mm -hmm. they can stock your book and it makes sense for them. Um, But audio is – you know, I've got most of my stuff 
Oh, I don't know. I, I'm all over the place. I do have a lot of it on audio now. A lot is through Podium Publishing, mm-hmm. and my best-selling series, Dragon Blood, is through them. I, I have occasionally wondered. I wonder how much I would have made if I'd done that series myself, and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I got a bigger chunk of the earnings. But mm-hmm. I really like the narrator they got, and they did a good job. And uh, plus, it is such an investment because I'm doing mm-hmm. some of my backlist stuff now on my own. You know, and for a hundred thousand or a hundred thousand word ebook. You're probably looking at like four thousand dollars to uh, pay the narrator to produce mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. maybe more, depending on who right. you find. Yeah, it's and not cheap. Yeah, even if it does decently, it takes a while to earn that money back. Mm-hmm. Unless, uh, you know, and I don't know how you've done. Um, something I did with my pen name, the last series I did this year, is I actually tried to get the audio going a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. Like, if you can get the audio out close to the release of the book while mm-hmm. like the book is still kind of having this hopefully initial surge in good sales mm-hmm. that really seems to spur the audiobook sales and, and help that out um, my dragon blood series i'm pretty sure one of the reasons that did real well on audio was not only did i have the ebook collection om- it was an omnibus of three books selling at like 99 cents and it stuck high on amazon for a long time after a book by bad and then but we put out the three book omnibus of the audiobook too so it was like 30 hours or something of uh for one credit mm-hmm. so i think it was a really good deal for the audible listeners mm-hmm. doing the credit system so i think that's why that one did really well mm-hmm. and that's something i want to explore with my the ones i'm doing with the backlist titles mm-hmm. they are kind of hard to promote right now the best promotion just seems to be if you can get a good ebook promotion mm-hmm. you know if you can get a, whenever i can get a book bub audiobook sales jump up too mm-hmm. so they haven't been as great for me as for some people, but I can't complain. I definitely get a nice quarterly PayPal. I was going to say check PayPal <laughs> <laughs> right. deposit every quarter from Podium, right. and I, you know, I'm up to like a thousand at least a month from uh, ACX. Like I said, I'm just doing the backlist stuff though. So aside from the new pen name books, they're just kind of things that trickle in because the eBooks are six years old at this point, and mm-hmm. I haven't been putting new installments in the series. But yeah, I think the real potential is there if you launch well with ebook and have the audiobook ready mm-hmm. to go soon after. And it, but if you're not selling, you know, probably four or five hundred copies a month on ebook, I think mm-hmm. it might be t- tough to make your money back. Mm-hmm. If you are doing funding the whole audiobook yourself, yep. it might take quite a while to take it back to earn it back. Yeah, yeah, it's hard that initial investment. Um, if you're not, and if you're not sure if it's going to sell that well, maybe it's a new series or whatever. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I don't have any hard data on my, my books, but I feel like the, and this is more probably subjective, but ebook print and audio, like even having those fairly ready together, I think helps a lot. Um, even though print is not a big seller for me or pretty much anybody. Um, I mean, there's a few exceptions. It's just something about, it's another, it just looks better. I think. You know, it's just kind of it, it, when a, someone comes to your sales page and they see these options, I think it just kind of for the for the transaction, it just goes, oh, there's another you know option or whatever. Um, but I, I think you're right on the audio thing. I've always waited way too long just because you're so burned out after a book and you're just like, ah, audio, like really, you know, and and you know, then you have to like go through it and <laughs> listen to it. It takes forever. You know, even if you're not doing it yourself, it's like, you know, some of, you know, just the edits and the, Oh, you messed this up on chapter two and you know, you need to slow down, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, it could just be a lot of work, but, but no, I think you're right. I think there is something about that. Um, I, I just see a big shift going to audio. Like people are just, 
it's kind of like the Netflix, you know, the binging and, and they can listen to it in the car or they can listen to it on the train or, you know, working out and kind of crank through books that way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's a good investment, you know, if you can do it, even ACX, you know, if you have to split, you know, I've, I split, I do mine ACX, but, um, but anyway, yeah, no, that's great. Um, so Lindsay, you've had a lot of success and, um, you've been doing well for quite a few years now and, and really have, uh, given a lot to the indie community and the writing community and, and uh, just all your advice and help and encouragement. And so but what has been kind of a, when you think kind of the last seven years, what's been kind of a, a what do you say, a writing or publishing failure um, that just didn't, things just didn't go well or things I learned along the way because of that, or because of maybe something I did? I think that for me, I've definitely been, you know, because there weren't all the podcasts out there, there wasn't quite as much advice on like my first series, the covers on them are like, I don't even promo them anymore. Cause I'm like, these covers are just not up to snuff <laughs> with what you see in epic fantasy. And, uh, so it's been just a learning thing. I don't regret it at all. And I, I feel kind of, maybe it's good that I didn't have all the expectations going in. Cause I, I've talked to people recently that listened to all these like, Oh yeah, I made a hundred thousand my first year. And, uh, mm-hmm. okay, I'm doing five figures right out of the gate with my little urban fantasy series. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, that sets some high expectations. I was so happy to get to a hundred dollars a month. I was like, yes, this is as much as I used to make on my paper route. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, some series I, I tried like, I guess I've tried to write series that I thought would be good sellers. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never written anything that I just for the money, like it had to be within my wheelhouse, but I, you know, I did like a contemporary fantasy series, which is not usually what I read. I kind of like the far, far away other galaxy kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, it wasn't, and it was in first person that was different for me. So that one wasn't a huge one. So it's one of the ones I've abandoned, but I need to finish because people will keep asking about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, one of the things is just getting caught up in trying to write something that you think will sell. When I look back on like kind of my two biggest series that are probably, well, Emperor's Edge has done fine over the years. I still have fans that that's their favorite one. That was my first series where I knew nothing and I was just kind of writing what I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but my Dragonblood series, I think, has made the most. Second most has probably been my Fallen Empire space opera series. Both of those, I was very much like Dragon Blood. The first one was never meant to be start a series, so it's written as a standalone. And then I kind of had to recover from that. Like, how am I going to turn this into a series? And it ended up being putting the first three in a box set that really got people hooked, because otherwise the first two were just these independent things that weren't necessarily leading people into a big series. So sometimes if you make mistakes, you can recover and <laughs> find another way to make it work. Mm-hmm. With the space opera series, I remember sitting to write the blurb, and I'm like, oh, man, this is not going to sell. Because it was basically, at the heart of it, it's a story of a mom looking for her missing daughter. And I'm like, this is not the theme of Star Wars. This is not Firefly. <laughs> you know, this is, No guy is going to want to read this story about a mom. Mm-hmm. But it ended up you know, really sticking. Those first three books on Amazon were in the top 200 or so for just the whole summer, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the series came out quickly, and, and that helped keep things selling. But... Mm-hmm. So even with as much experience as I've gained in the last few years, I can't necessarily tell what's going right. to be my big seller or what's not. So I, I'm trying to remember just to write what I'm excited about. And hopefully some of those books, you know, the more books you write, the more chances you have of right. kind of writing one of those ones that just sticks on Amazon and really appeals right. to a lot of the people. And I, I, I'm i fine with the right to market people because a lot of times those people that succeed with that, that's what they loved anyway. Mm-hmm. They kind of happen to find a market that was really popular that uh was their passion and like they read all those books and they totally love it Mm -hmm. 
I've never been super excited about the really popular stuff, so mm-hmm. I feel like I'm uh, faking it if I attempt to write something to be popular. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just I guess that's the thing I've learned is I can't predict what's going to be a good seller, and I just I, I do better just writing what I love and, and mm-hmm. writing enough things that now and then you get something that does well. Yeah. No, I think that's great advice. I think so many writers get caught up in you know what's sellable, what's marketable, and they they or they write, write something that just can't stand reading or don't enjoy. Um, you know, I, I talk we talk a lot a lot about this on the show is just the subjectivity of why people like certain things, and it's just it is really strange. I mean, every day someone's going, "Hey, you should watch this show," and then I watch the show and I'm like, I hated every second of that. Like, why do you like that? You know, <laughs> or hey, read read this book, and you end up you know, not enjoying that book or whatever. So it's just one of those, those things that, um, you, um, you just don't know. I mean, bestsellers, every, every publisher will tell you, we had no idea this book was going to be a bestseller. Um, if they did, they would just crank out the same books every single time. But, um, you know, certain names can best sell just cause they have a name, but, um, but no, I think that's, that's important. You like, you want to enjoy what you're doing. You want to have fun writing. You want to, you know, tap into that part of you of why you do that in the first place. Um, so Lindsay, as we kind of uh, get to the end of the the interview, I always do kind of a what I call quick hit questions, and so these are just kind of recommendations, things that people need to check out um, as far as uh, books and TV and and software and stuff. So, how about uh, a must read fiction book that's not your own? All right. Well, for my fans of science fiction and otherworldly stuff, I love Lois McMaster Bujold's Four Cossigan series. She's got, you know, she started writing them in like the 80s and every now and then she still puts a new one out. I just, I love the hero. He's so atypical. He's like this, I don't know, mutant, I guess you'd call it. He's like four foot nine or something and has all these issues, but he's really smart and that's like his superpower. Mm-hmm. And so he goes, you know, he has all these great, sci- you know, military sci-fi kind of, it starts, I don't know, it evolves over the series as he gets older. It, you know, in the end, he's got a family, but he's always getting himself into trouble because he's such a schemer, and I can totally relate to that. <laughs> I love that. So he's just a this hero. You watch him like destroying himself with his his dreams and his goals, and then he has to find a way out. And I, I think a lot of us are afraid to really have heroes that are flawed, mm-hmm. and that's so important. And we relate so much to that as people because we all have our vulnerability vulnerabilities and you know our flaws and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's great to have a hero that kind of does have some awesome power or something that's makes him heroic and that he can do things we can only dream of mm-hmm. but then you know he can't eat food without dropping it on his shirt or whatever <laughs> like some of the flaws we can all identify with and even some flaws that are kind of big you know mm-hmm. that really make him not as likable sometimes mm-hmm. I, I love to see that in a protagonist. That I get great. really bored with the uh, the Mary Sues and Marty Stews. Right. There seem to be a lot of those out there. Yeah. So Lois, it was Lois McMaster. Is that a French last name? There's another name behind that. How do you? Bujold. Okay. B-U-J-O-L-D. Got it. There we go. I'll put it in the show notes. How about right. uh, any nonfiction that must read nonfiction? Mm, I usually listen to like business stuff, so okay. I don't know. Where. That's fine. I can't even think of anything that has really knocked my socks off lately. Okay. No problem. The, the Red Queen, that was not business. That was really an interesting read, kind of biology stuff. Okay. Great. <laughs> How about uh, TV or film? I'm not watch. I'm horrible. I don't watch any any stuff. I kind of wait till you know, like, 
that's the last thing I binged watch was probably Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> right. I, I wait till somebody says, oh, you have to watch this. And then um, five years after it's yeah. off the air. I am trying the new Star Trek. I'm kind of like undecided yeah, on it right. yet. <laughs> I'm kind of that way too. Like someone made a recommendation. I'm like, oh, that's been on for like six years. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll check that out. Um, any software you recommend? Just any kind of, it doesn't have to be related to writing or anything. Anything you use, apps, software that you find helpful? Mm, I use Scrivener and Vellum, probably like 90% of your guests. <laughs> I started out writing novels in Word like everyone else, and I was so happy when I found Scrivener. <laughs> I was right. like, this is the tool I've been waiting for. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, Vellum too. Like people, if you're listening, get Vellum. It'll save your life many times over. Makes beautiful books. And I just did my first print book, and it came out really great. So really excited about that. So, Lindsay, you are um, on a undisclosed planet somewhere. Your spaceship has has crashed, and you discover there's a live microphone on this planet, and you have the opportunity to share with the writing community three truths that they need to know about writing and publishing. What are those three truths you'd like to share with the universe? I thought you were going to say, what am I going to talk about? I'm like, I'd be exploring the planet. That sounds really cool. <laughs> You do that after. All right. Three truths. Well, I've kind of touched on it. You know, just you have to write what you're really excited about. And it, it's important to realize that, you know, some people really are, they love the best-selling stuff. Like, I just listened to an interview with somebody that's like, I love Twilight. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> but now she's writing vampire fiction and killing it. And that's what she loves. And that is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's a lot of us, I think, that become writers that were a little quirky. We were the kids in school that didn't fit in. And it's important to realize that probably there are other people out there, readers, potential readers that share your particular sense of humor and quirkiness. And mm-hmm. even if you're the person that makes jokes and nobody laughs among your, <laughs> among the people you're hanging out with, the people that find you funny are out there online mm-hmm. and you know, you're, you're writing for them. I have, there's like a rapper NF. He's got a quote about a or a lyric in his song is like, I don't write so a million or I don't rap. So a million people will love me. I rap because there's a million people just like me, something like that. <laughs> That's good. And it's true. You got to, there's people out there. You're writing for them. Yep. So is that one? Is That's that two? One. That's one. Uh, maybe it's one? One, two, <laughs> one and a half. All right. Two is that, no matter how interesting and quirky and fun and cool and original your thing is, you should probably package it like everything else out there mm-hmm. in your genre. People like the same, want more of the same, but a little different. Mm-hmm. So you, first you have to prove to them like, oh, this is an awesome cover. You know, here's a dragon or here's whatever is in your top 100 for your category. Go look mm-hmm. and uh, kind of see the blurbs. Look at all the blurbs and what's selling. And then look at your own and see how can I kind of harness a couple of the things that are still true about the book, but that are also fit in with what's selling, which I know it sounds uh, opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like here you've written this original thing and I'm telling you to write this original thing and now mm-hmm. go make it look like everyone else's. Mm-hmm. But that's the easiest way to get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. The more your story sounds like something somebody's read and enjoyed, the more likely they're going to give it a chance. Mm-hmm. And then they open it up, and hopefully the writing's really good, and you just suck them in, and they kind of forget that, you know, the the one thing that they were there for is only a minor plot point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, they, you know, oh, this is a really original story. So don't be afraid to, like, put your marketing hat on. And mm-hmm. once the book's done, you know, do the artist thing when you're writing the book. And then how am I going to make this this appealing product and sell it? Mm-hmm. So good. that's two, right? That's good. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's really good. Three. Okay, last one. 
making these up on the fly is don't be too precious about the value of a book, of your book. You, you know, and I took seven years writing my first book because I started it, stopped it, went off and played World of Warcraft for years, came back, <laughs> rewrote the ending, rewrote the whole thing. So I understand that like you put all this time in it and all this energy and you feel like, dang it, that is at least worth six ninety nine in mm-hmm. the ebook form or whatever. <laughs> uh, the truth is that people are more likely to give you a chance if you price low, at least for the first book. You know, like I said, I've got a bunch of book for ones that are free mm-hmm. you know i see a lot of authors like oh, i think my book should be worth 9.99 or it's just mm-hmm. you know and it, it's worth what the person's willing to pay for it that's just kind of the how the business thing goes and it, you know if you start what i find helps is just start right away working on the next book and then you're able to maybe distance yourself a little bit from the first one and stop thinking mm-hmm. of it as your baby <laughs> <laughs> right. and that helps with the reviews too if mm-hmm. i don't even look at reviews but if you're the kind of person that looks at them if you're already on some exciting new project you're probably going to be less likely to be crushed mm-hmm. if there is a, a poor review right. or if you've realized that i really do need to try 99 cents for a little while or i need to be in ku and people are just going to subscribe it and i'm going to earn pennies mm-hmm. you know hopefully it's not really about making a ton of money off of one book, right? It's mm-hmm. you're hopefully going to have a career, you're going to keep writing books, and eventually it's about making money to live off of, or even do more than live off of it, off of a body of work. Mm-hmm. So if you're discounting book one, means you sell more of the rest of the series, and don't be afraid to do that. Mm-hmm. That's great. No, that's really good advice. I think that's you know the heart of the show is the prolific writer is one that doesn't. It's got to you know you got to move on. You got to get to the next book. You know, not live and die with the one that's the great American novel. And uh, you know, it's it's hard. I think you have to go through it a few times to kind of get over that, and then go okay. You know, because I know for me and maybe for you too, it's like when you do get to the end of the book, you are kind of sick of it. You know, and after you've edited it eighty two times, and you know you're you're excited for the next story. Um, at least that's how I am. You know, I, I can't wait to get into the the new story, the freshness, the newness of it, even if it's the same world, but. Um, but no, that's, those are great, great things, Lindsay. Um, just as we wrap up, um, if someone wants to find you and where should they start as far as your books and then kind of where's the best place to find you? All right. Well, I'm lindsaybaroker.com, my lovely website that hasn't been updated in six months, but I'm going to change that too. And I've got some free fiction I'm going to put up there and to get people psyched up for me returning to writing fantasy (laughs) under my own name. Um, but for science fiction, if you like that, Star Nomad, first book in my Fallen Empire series, is free right now on all the stores. If you're more of a fantasy person, you could try The Emperor's Edge or Balanced on the Blade's Edge. Those are both book one series starters. And uh, those all lead into series, but they're all they're not like huge cliffhangery endings. Mm-hmm. Star Nomad kind of is a little bit because mm-hmm. <laughs> she's on a quest and you can't wrap things up too much. But uh, I... I believe in telling a good, complete story mm-hmm. <laughs> almost all the time. <laughs> great. Well, hey, Lindsay, thank you so much. This has been such fun and a great privilege, and I'm so excited to have been able to finally talk to you, and I'm so excited for your success. You've helped a lot of people today with your advice, and uh, I hope we can keep in touch, and thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Now that uh, all my other collaboration buddies have been on it, I know it's a trendy <laughs> thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it was peer pressure. So thanks for for coming on. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye, all. Well, there you have it, prolific writer nation. Lindsay Baroker dropping some serious writerly advice. Uh, Thank you, Lindsay, for coming on the show. Go check out lindsaybaroker.com and get all her books. And she is a, a, a blessing and she is a huge help to the 
indie writing community and the writing community in general. She has a great podcast too. We'll put that in the show notes. You can learn more about marketing, sci-fi and different kinds of books. Thank you, Lindsay. I just love her humility and the things she's learned and the things that she's continually uh, doing with her writing. And one of the things that just my big takeaway is the best marketing you have is write the next book. And so this podcast, this show is dedicated to helping you write fast, write often and write well, and really believing the best marketing is writing that next thing. So get out there and write those words. Great advice, Lindsay. Thanks for sharing. As always, go check out projectentertainmentnetwork.com all the great shows and podcasts it's growing every month every year we're excited to be part of this family and also go check out subculturecorsets.com our sponsor put the prolific writer in the space where it says coupon or whatever on the website if you buy something and you'll get a 10% discount so thank you subculture corsets for supporting this show and all the shows on project entertainment network And hey, this has been another fantastic interview. So privileged, so thankful to be part of this and get to do this. And hey, I just have one word before I go. Go get those words on the page and I'll talk to you real, real soon. Join us each Wednesday on the Mondo Method Podcast, brought to you by Project Entertainment Network. The Mondo Method Podcast features authors Armand Rosamilia and Chuck Buddha as they discuss the writing process from both the veteran and the novice perspectives. Each episode ends with a segment called Marketing Morsels, where expert publicist Aaron Sweet Almahari teaches everyone how to promote their work and sell more books. Check us out on the Mondo Method podcast on Project Entertainment Network. This has been an exclusive presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.